Hello, and welcome to the God in the Wild series on the Idlewild podcast channel. God in the Wild explores the faith journeys of members of our community at Idlewild Presbyterian Church and how they see God at work in their lives. I am Elizabeth Doolin, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We are recording Monday, July 6th, 2020 at roughly 2 p.m. My name is Jim Alritz, coming from Chicago. I was born and raised at Idlewild, but I currently live in Chicago, where I attend St. Paul's United Church of Christ. And here with me is... Beth Simpson, Jim's grandmother in Memphis, longtime member of Idlewild. And I think nominally I would ask you how we're connected, but I think, yeah, (laughs) you beat me to that one. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about your history with the church, and in particular, we're going to be discussing your involvement and Idlewild's involvement with, for lack of a better term, the social movements of different eras. So to begin with, can you tell me a little bit about your experience growing up and your exposure or lack thereof to people of races different from your own? I can. Jim, I'd like to start by doing this. I'm going to refer to people as black people rather than Mm African-American. I'm doing this because I asked a friend, which she preferred, and she immediately said black. And then interestingly, I Googled that question too. And the uh, the largest number of people said they preferred being black. So I'm going to use that term. So I grew up in blissful ignorance and total lack of awareness of anything outside my my white neighborhood. My friends all walked to school together. We went to the same neighborhood movie. We shopped in the same stores. The only black people I knew were maids and yard men. It's just a real uh, shameful confession, but it's just the way things were. Uh, There was no television then. I didn't have television until I was in junior high. And then only, For the first couple of years, there were mostly only variety shows and things like that, local news, nothing that that gave me a chance to see the world outside of of my own experience. And it was the time that everybody's heard about when uh, everything was separate, marked colored, colored water uh, water fountains, colored entrances. I especially remember the buses. Uh, I rode the city bus often because like most families, we only had one car. I rode the bus weekly to the orthodontist. And in the sixth grade, I rode the bus home from school. So aware of that uh, people at the back of the bus and seeing particularly uh, people, I'm sure maids getting on the bus with heavy packages of bags at the end of the day. And trudging back to the back of the bus. Sometimes there weren't enough seats on the back and they stood up, you know, no thought that anybody would ever, of course, give them a seat. So I was just a product of that, um, of that era when we would just, we didn't see, we didn't uh, recognize, and we didn't, uh, if we saw, we didn't see any way to make it different. Do you remember what the first point in your life was that you really became aware that you had been living in that sort of bubble? Well, the, maybe the very first time was uh, Ottawa women had a, mish, or ha- had a, a relationship with 
uh, Bethel Presbyterian Church, which was our black sister church. And they were in a Bible school in the summers. And when I was in high school, and then I think a couple of years in college, I volunteered in that Bible school. And I met the minister's wife, Mrs. McDaniel, who was a lovely, lovely, gracious person. And I realized that it was the first time I'd ever called a black woman by anything other than a given name, Mary or Viola or whatever. And then in high school, we used to go to Nakomi. We had a senior high conference at Nakomi, and it was just what we looked forward to more than anything. A wonderful week with, with kids from across the Senate, Nashville, Columbia, all of And my senior year, someone, I think from First Presbyterian Church, brought two black girls to Nakomi just for the day. They didn't spend the night. But all kinds of things happened. The rumor went out that one of the girls had used someone's lipstick. And so, and so that essentially put an end to uh, the senior high conference. And then, I guess, going a little further. Well, let me just say that my college years, again, were just, again, just unaware, still in the same cocoon. Uh, I was deeply involved in the Kinney program, which was a student service organization. And we went to the Episcopal Youth Center and to the Neighborhood Christian Center, and we worked in the burn ward at, uh, at the Med, always uh, with black kids, but there, it was not, we were the, we were the, you know, sort of the Good Samaritans coming to help. There was not a, it was not a, a equal kind of relationship in any way. And just to clarify for our listeners, can you um, tell us about your experience in college and also um, your husband, my grandfather, his experience with college and law school and how, where that kind of put you during that uh, bit of your young adult life? His experience would have been like mine. We had, we had no black students at, at Southwestern then, now Rhodes. Uh, in college, I mean, in law school, when we lived in Nashville, I had another really just a eye-opening and really gut-wrenching experience. I was doing a, a taking an adult education class downtown uh, Nashville at the Y and at class one night a huge disturbance outside and we went to the window to look and there were about 30 young black students from Meharry and Fisk and there was a movie theater and they were in a circle going up to ask for a ticket and turned away and they just kept it was a, it was a nonviolent protest but all along the side, the noise came from white people screaming profanities at them, and they were throwing bottles and rocks, and it just, it was just appalling. I just, it, it was the first time I'd ever seen such, such ugliness and hatred. So that was, uh, you know, uh, certainly a, a, a point of beginning to be woke, I suppose. So in the last, really a month and a half or so, America has started to have really a, a new wave of reckoning with our history of systemic racism. And you were witness to an earlier version of that reckoning during the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work in Memphis. Can you tell me a little bit about how you saw that and also what Idlewild was doing at that time? I can. Um... Jim, the, it was such tense times. Um, there had been so much building up. Um, let me go back and say that, it, that a lot of hard work had been done in Memphis to avoid the kind of uh, just 
disaster and, and um, just the, the shameful sort of things that ended up happening. In 1961, uh, the schools had been desegregated uh, nominally. 13 students had been placed in schools without any incidents. Um, there was a, a growing effort to, to integrate lunch counters and um, uh, city leaders were involved together with church leaders. But on the outside, all of the things that you know so well were happening, you know, the core students, uh, the bombing of the, uh, the bombing of the Birmingham jail, and things that were just leading to so much racial tension. And uh, Dr. Jones, um, well, in 1964, uh, Rhodes and Memphis State then, students uh, began to try to be seated in, in white churches in Memphis. They came to Idlewild and were turned away the first Sunday that they tried. Uh, but I have heard that Dr. Jones was out of town when that happened, but nevertheless, the session met the following week, and according to Perry Magnus's book, they had a long, heated meeting. And it was finally decided, uh, not, uh, not a consensus, but it was decided that no one would ever not be seated again at Idlewild. That it was, Dr. Jones said, this is not my church, it's not your church, it's God's church. And from that time on, uh, black people, anybody who came was seated. Uh, I think you know the story about uh, what happened at Second Presbyterian. And um, so it was can you, can, can you tell that story for people who might not know it? Uh, well, the same group went to Second Presbyterian and they were turned away several Sundays. And, and one Sunday they ended up kneeling in protest outside the church. And, you know, Steve Haynes has written the book, um, the, the Last Segregated Hour, which is about that, that in, uh, those incidents. But um, it was a very, very tense time. Um, when Dr. Jones would, uh, his, when his sermons would touch on race relations or on inclusiveness or whatever, people would, many times, people would get up and walk out in the middle of the sermon. I remember one Sunday particularly, there was a man who was a very, very prominent member of the church, had been a longtime friend of Dr. Young's and was said to be probably the largest financial supporter. And something came up in the sermon and he got up from his aisle seat and stormed out and, and went through the double doors at the back of the church and you could hear them bang against each other. It was just not just... Um, it was dramatic. And so it, it was just a, an indication of how tense the situation was and how, um, what a challenge it was to lead the church through that time. So uh, I give that background to say that in 1968, um, as I remember, it was early April, because Martin Luther King was killed in um, on the 9th, I believe. Um, I ate the night. Anyway, it was early April, and uh, a group of us had met to talk about what the churches, what the church might do in response to the garbage strike. We we really wanted the church to make a statement on behalf of the sanitation workers, and the impasse of the strike was was you know that the sanitation workers were asking for recognition of a union for higher wages and for some improved safety conditions. And so we just hoped that the church might make a statement um, on their behalf. So we 
I asked the session if they would hear us and we met and I remember it so vividly. It was a late afternoon um, called meeting in the, in the chapel and about maybe eight or 10, I don't know if I sat on the back row of the chapel and Walt Jones uh, read our letter or uh, gave our request and the session heard us and thanked us and let us go. And then they declined to uh, act on it. And really, I understand we were disappointed. Um, I, I understand now because uh, just what I was saying to you about the tensions, it was so, so extreme in the church. And wiser leaders, I think, knew that you could only push so far. But we who were in our 30s and thought we knew how to save the world wanted to do something more, um, more significant. But um, it didn't happen. And then, of course, a few days later, Martin Luther King was killed. And it was just the most tragic moment in our city. Um, just unbelievably sad. There was a joint worship service the week followed that was held at Crump Stadium, which was the largest arena, a memorial or a, a service to honor King. And it, it was just amazing to see the outpouring, the interracial outpouring of, of support at that meeting, like nothing you know we'd ever seen before. But on that point, we were asking too much. So having seen that outpouring and that change that came with Dr. King's assassination, can you tell us a little bit about when you did start to see change happening in Idlewild and what that change looked like? Well, the change really came through our recreation department. We had had some uh, integrated plays, some kids from the neighborhood, um, uh, the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, in 1972, Roger Manus came and Walker Welford was the chairman of the Recreation Committee, and he asked me if I might call some of David's friends, who would have been 10 years old, to see if we could put together a basketball team. So I did, and we actually only got four out-of-wild players, and we, uh, we got together a team with three kids from Evergreen and one from First Presbyterian. And then uh, just the great blessing, uh, the neighborhood kids who came to join and who were a part of that period, many, many, but some, the ones that we knew and were involved with over the next years. And it was just a, a, a wonderful blessing for us and I think for the church, but that was the primary way. And then Jim, a really interesting uh, thing that happened. Uh, I know you know Jean Hamilton. In 1972, Tom and Jean Hamilton came to join, joined out a while uh, with their children, Barbara and Rodney. They were first black family that had ever belonged, uh, had ever come to Idlewild. Tom had been a postal worker and he had a really serious heart attack and was in the hospital for a long time. And his minister was Ezekiel Bell, who was a minister at Parkway Gardens, Presbyterian. And he was by that time head of the NAACP in Memphis and really involved in all the racial things that were going on. And he never came to visit Tom in the hospital, but Dr. Jones and Dr. Johnson um, saw that he was a Presbyterian, and so they began to visit him and stayed attentive to him and, and, and involved with him even after he 
went home. And so when he recovered and well, was well enough, he wanted to come to Ottawa. He wanted to bring his family to Ottawa. And you think about the courage that took. Jean and I have talked about it, and she um, acknowledges that she that it was it was passion for Tom. He was he so much wanted to do it, but it was hard for her. She was afraid for her children, and she was just unsure. You can imagine how it would feel to come into a church the size of Ottawa. And um, Tom, by that time, was um, on disability and had lots of time, and so he came. He went to Roger and said. He'd like to help coach. And so he began to be very much involved in the recreation program. Uh, David reminds me that uh, Roger gave Tom a book, the book by uh, John Wooden called Call Me, Call Me Coach. And Tom read it just, and he so much wanted to be an advocate for those boys. And he was, he was a mentor. And tragically, he died I, probably about five years after, after he joined out a while. He had just really serious heart problems. But that was a, a huge step forward in many ways. And, it, and gracious, what a blessing to the church. Having lived through all of these different moments and all of this advancement that has happened both in the history of Idlewild and also in the history of our country, what parallels do you see between that movement, that initial desegregation of Idlewild and society more broadly and the movements that are currently happening against systemic racism and police brutality against black people? Oh, Jim, uh, I wish I could think that things had uh, changed. That, you know, 30 years ago when I, we, our group went to the session and I was in my 30s and, you know, 50 years have passed. And we think sometimes that things are better, but all it takes is sort of uh, pushing the scab off to see how, how much anger and hostility and how much racial prejudice there still is. Um, I hope, I hope that the things that have happened in the last weeks, months, have really, really opened the eyes of people to the fact that racial prejudice runs so deep and it is so alive in our in our world. Uh, I, the letter that we took to, uh, well, actually a follow-up letter that we took to the session talked about the urgent need to address the problems of race and poverty in Memphis and how important it was, we thought, for the church to be that agent of change. and. I think we've we've tried in many ways. I do think that I do think Idlewild has done an, an exceptional job. There's so many ministries, but it's obvious we still have a long way to go. Uh, at the top of this episode, when you were talking about your own background, you mentioned that when you were growing up, there wasn't TV or anything like the mass media that we have now. Do you think that having the internet and television and all these different new ways of connectivity is the source of a difference between what that movement was and what this movement is now? I do. And I think that, um, you know, we only have even back then to have watched the awful things that happened to John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or the, the angry, angry taunts that the George Wallace uh, period uh, produced to see 
that's just got to wake us up. But I also think, unfortunately, that on the internet, there's just so much disinformation and so much possibility for, for creating all the mistruths or the, the lies, the ugliness. So I guess it's a mixed blessing, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's, if ever there were a description of the internet, mixed blessing surely has to feature in there. Um, part of the overarching idea of this God in the Wild series is to talk about faith formation. And obviously faith formation is tied not only to our individual experiences with God, but also the community through which we experience God. Can you talk a little bit about how the reflecting on these specific moments in time and your personal realization and growth and work towards the growth of others has impacted your faith and your understanding of who God is or what our call to serve God is like? Uh, I think you know, Jim, that I'm a huge Frederick Bickner fan. Um, I love the way uh, Frederick Bickner uses stories to, uh, to express truths. He tells a story and he, there's no preaching. It's just the story's there for you to draw whatever um, truth from it hits you. And it's just, uh, I think it's so very, very, uh, such a wonderful way to lead you to your own thoughts about. And so one of my favorite Deacon books is called Longing for Home. And in it, he has a chapter called uh, A Letter to Benjamin. Benjamin is his grandson. And when Benjamin was born, Bigness son asked him to do something special for this new, I think, first grandchild. And so he decided that what he would do is write a letter to Benjamin to be opened on Benjamin's 21st birthday. And he includes this letter in this book, Longing for Home. And in it, he tells the stories of Benjamin's ancestors, the stories of grandparents and great-grandparents. But then what I love is he said, in the essence, all our stories are the same story. Our stories are stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good work to do. We search to be human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and be loved. And in a world where it's often hard to believe in much of anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life-transcending that will give meaning and purpose to the lives we live. And I have found myself, when I see people whose lives are so different from mine and whose, um, whose experience is so different from mine, saying to myself, our story is the same. My story may have been easier to uh, navigate it might have been without the terrible disappointments or the terrible uh, roadblocks that other people have had. But essentially, we all do want to find meaning and purpose in life. And we all do want to find something of the good. And we all do want to love and be loved. And I think somehow if we, can, if we have a sense of that, it just, you can't look at other people and in the same way. I think that I almost wish we had cameras turned on right now because I, I've got um, some chills from that. That's, I think, a really powerful and wonderful sentiment. And thank you for, for sharing those quotes and those stories. Speaking of 
things that are, are bringing all of us together. Another aspect of the last few months that is really, I think, challenging everyone's faith and also something that's unifying us across distances is trying to change our understanding of what church is when we cannot gather in the same physical space for the sake of public health. Um, and I know that different churches are handling that in different ways and different individuals are. So I, I'd like to ask how your understanding of church and your experience with church has evolved during the current global pandemic. Well, that's a hard one because church for me is just so much family. It's just the people who have helped to shape my life, the people who have helped to shape your life and um, the people who've loved us and cared about us and seen us through the, the highs and the lows. So it's a real um, minus, big minus not to be able to be together. But Adewal has done an incredible job of, of um, reaching out and trying to keep everybody in the loop and um, of staying in touch. Um, I know it's especially working on looking after us old folks. Uh, I've had people call me to check in to see how, how I am. And, um, but it's, it certainly is a challenge, but I, I think Idlewell has done an amazing job of trying to, to keep in touch and to embrace its family in every way it can. Where do you, you see Christ at work in your life right now? Oh, Jim. I, um, Coming in with the easy questions here. <laughs> I, I see him at work in the amazing uh, lives of the people around me uh, and, and kindnesses that um, come so unexpectedly in uh, the way people respond um, that's how I see, I mean, I just see people at church who, who just, well, and not only in church, people everywhere who, who just, who, who take the moment or make the moment to be kind. And, you know, uh, speaking of that, I, I will go back to one more quote, and this is the Dr. Paul Tudor Jones quote, he, and it's another favorite of mine. He says, and we, whoever we have or don't have, we're in the position to pass on that commodity that never goes out of style, the kindness of God for Christ's sake. And that's where I see Jesus, see Christ at work, I, in the kindness and the love and the compassion of other people. It's what I think gives us hope in dark times and uh, makes us trust that when we see the goodness in people, we have a sense of God's goodness. It, it reminds me a little bit of, um, there's a quote that I've heard attributed to Oscar Schindler. The, uh, it wasn't from the film Schindler's List, but something that the actual Oscar Schindler said, which is when you know people, you have to behave towards them like human beings. And I think that there's, um, obviously I think that quote is meant in a secular context, but it strikes me as a sort of similar thing, that sort of recognition of, of people as individuals and that, that, that call to see the div divine spark in everyone is really there. And, you know, another Beatman quote that I love is, he said, we all have it in us to be life-giving to others. Mm. And, you know, think about that. We have it in us to be life-giving to other people. And that's, um, that's another good one. Yeah. So to kind of wrap things up with a little bit of a lighter note, we've got uh, 
question from God in the Wild that we ask all the guests. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what are three things that you'd want to have with you? Well, thanks for giving me a little heads up so I'd have a minute to think about this. But first of all, I'd like to have some family pictures. Second, I'd like to have my favorite Bigna books and a couple of few Henry Nowen books. And third, I'd like to have some way to express a little creativity, maybe some watercolors and a watercolor pad or some colored pencils and paper or something, but some way that I could um, doodle a little bit. I think those things would make me content. Do you have any kind of uh, final thoughts or words of wisdom or anything that you want to leave listeners with? Well, I'll start on a personal note by saying I'm very proud to have this chance to have you do this uh, interview. And, uh, and second, you know, it, it's awfully easy to be so disheartened and discouraged. Um, but it is amazing what the gift of kindness and compassion can do to make the world, to make a difference when we think there's almost no hope. So, so uh, always the optimist. Well, I, I want to thank you for making the time to record this interview. And since, uh, since I have a platform and it's getting recorded, um, I do want to make a point to make sure that you know and listeners know that I am exceedingly proud to be your grandson. I don't know if you know how often I tell my friends stories about you and the amount of work that you've done over the course of your life to continually be educating yourself and bettering yourself in this way through learning and through service. And I think that that's something I hope everyone can learn and take away from because I certainly do my best to model myself after living uh, a life like the one that you lead. Oh. I, I think you're a pretty wonderful individual. Well, I'm humbled and grateful, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of God in the Wild. If you'd like to be involved, whether through leading an interview or nominating someone whose story you would like to hear, please contact me, Elizabeth Doolin, at edoolin at idlewildchurch.org. May God be with you out in the wild.